next on the Public Radio Hour, we continue our exploration of the earthly challenges we overcame to land a man on the moon. We'll talk with filmmaker Robert Stone, who has produced a new PBS documentary series titled Chasing the Moon. It's important to remember the race to the moon was war by other means. This was a war of visual imagery and a war between the Soviet Union and the United States to demonstrate to the rest of the world, you know, which society is going to lead us into the future. We'll also continue talking with people who worked in the Apollo 11 program, including Arthur Hewlett, who overcame discrimination as one of the first African-American engineering aides at Marshall Space Flight Center. Having gone to Germany and served faithfully in the military and come home and hoping that you could see things better, it wasn't any better, I don't suppose, but I didn't stop trying. I thought it was my job to try to help make them prove it. And of course, I think eventually I did. The Public Radio Hour is next, right after this news update. This is the Public Radio Hour on 89.3 Huntsville, a weekly mix of special programs and homemade radio features. Tonight, we're thinking about the moon and more specifically, the social, political, and technical hurdles we had to clear to get there. Later in the show, we'll talk with Arthur Hewlett, one of the few African Americans working in a technical field at Marshall Space Flight Center during the Apollo 11 program. He'll share stories about the challenges minorities faced as the country and NASA struggled with integration. But first, let's meet filmmaker Robert Stone, who's in Huntsville at the moment for a special sneak peek screening and panel discussion hosted by Alabama Public Television, WLRH, and the U.S. Space and Rocket Center regarding the new PBS American Experience documentary series titled Chasing the Moon. This visually stunning series spans six hours over three episodes and premieres on public television stations across the country July 11th, 9th, and 10th. Stone has been honored for his historical documentaries, including works like Radio Bikini, American Babylon, and Pandora's Promise. He says the inspiration for Chasing the Moon comes from his childhood fascination with the space race between the Soviet Union and America. I was 10 years old when we first landed on the moon, so most of my childhood was spent seeing this transpire and living in anticipation of this incredible moment when we were going to leave the Earth and and uh, go to another world for the first time. And, you know, there's been a lot of movies and um, TV shows and books about this in all the years since. Um, some of them are very good. But I felt that none of them had really captured, for me, what it was like to live in a time when we came together to do something as audacious as going to the moon. And most, most of the approaches have been about trying to capture the astronaut experience. It's only 12 people have been to the moon, so that's a kind of a unique experience, and some of the films have done that pretty well. And, and we, we cover that as well. But the primary focus for Chasing the Moon is what it was like for us here on Earth, and so I wanted to make a film that would impart that feeling to a new generation of people um, who don't remember this, never experienced it, and to show that, you know, even in even in these divisive times that we live in now, we were just as divided, if not more so, back then. I think it demonstrates what we can do if we can set aside our differences and come together and do something incredible and how that will pull us together and make us realize our, our common humanity and that we can really achieve anything if we put our minds to it. 
Your father was a historian, chair of the Department of History at Princeton. Is he somehow connected to your love of uh, history and making documentaries? Oh, I'm sure. Yeah, you know, the apple didn't fall so far from the tree. Yeah, <laughs> um, so I was I was brought up uh, in a family of academics and historians, so I definitely have a, a love of history, and I think uh, most of the documentaries I've ma- made have sort of mined mind my childhood, really, and sort of, uh, I, I grew up in a really incredibly interesting time and saw it, you know, through a kid's eyes because my parents were so engaged in what was going on and so imbued in the whole history of, of how we got there and just very, uh, were very involved. I saw a lot of things and have tried to make sense of it in all the years since. I've seen part one of the series, and it really is a, a beautiful piece of work. Let's talk for just a moment about how the documentary series uh, was produced. First of all, there doesn't seem to be a traditional narrator. The storytelling is done through interviews with people who had an actual connection to the story. Yeah, I have never used a narrator in my films. Um, I, I tend to feel like a narrator kind of creates a distance between the audience and the subject matter. So it's obviously much more difficult telling a story without it, but I think it brings an audience in closer to the subject matter. And in this case, we didn't film any of the interviews either. The, the, the interviews were done audio only, so right. it's a fully immersive experience. You're just you're 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 seeing everything unfold um, as it happened with, uh, and everybody's young. Everybody's in the prime of their life. There's not this sense of. Uh, of um, you know old people reminiscing about the past, and we also ke- kept the um, the number of interviews to a very tight. I think there's twelve people who were interviewed for the film, uh, and they they for the most part they span parts one, two, and three. So it's a very personal story, uh, and they're not you know there there were there are four astronauts interviewed, but um, there's uh, journalists and scientists. And uh, we have uh, the, the first African American uh, astronaut candidate, uh, who you, you've, you've seen in part one, um, uh, who's got an amazing story. Uh, the Kennedy administration wanted to recruit an African American into the astronaut corps, and uh, we found him. He's still alive. He's an amazing person. He's got an incredible story. Uh, we interviewed uh, Poppy Northcutt, who was the first and only woman in mission control during the Apollo era. Uh, she shows up in parts two and parts three. Um, she's got an incredible story. So it's a it's a it's a, a diverse uh, uh, cast of characters who carry you through the whole uh, adventure from from really starting chronologically. It doesn't flow entirely chronologically, but chronologically it goes from uh, the end of World War II with the the first V two rockets um, developed by the Germans at the end of World War II all the way to Tranquility Base in 69 and beyond and onto Mars. And those interviews were woven together with new archival material. And after all these years and after all the times this story has been told, where did you find new material to use? And what were some of the most compelling material that you found? Well, it is kind of incredible if you think about how many people have approached this subject and uh, that there's still so much archival footage that we found that nobody's ever seen before. Um, and I think the reason for that is most filmmakers who've approached this have just gone to the NASA collection because, well, first of all, it's public domain, so it's free. It's gorgeous. There's so much of it. And so many people felt there probably wasn't a reason to go beyond that. Um, and we did. We, you know, thanks to PBS, who gave me 
uh, the time. This this film took uh, nearly five years to make, um, and the resources and the creative space to really dig deep. And we went into nearly a hundred different archives um, to source materials for this, and we found. Uh, I mean, I think even the most jaded space aficionado is going to be pretty amazed with what we've come up with. Lots and lots of surprises. There were really a, a lot of nice moments mixed into to part one. I can't wait to see parts uh, two and three. And one that sort of jumped out to me was uh, the montage made of footage from rocket failures and explosions on the launch pad. In uh, and, and just those few seconds, it really gave me a renewed respect for the danger and difficulty of this kind of endeavor. And, and that seems to be one of the challenges you face as a filmmaker, and you've touched on this already, to show the nuance and, and details of all the difficulties, social, political, economic, technical, involved with the mission to the moon. Yeah, I mean, it's important to remember that this was not just a technical challenge. It was that in space. I mean, there were, there, when Kennedy said he wanted to put an American on the moon before the end of the decade, nobody quite knew how to do it. We had to work that out. Uh, and the fact that we did it in such a short period of time, nine years, is pretty incredible. Overcoming a technical challenge that really was completely daunting and really hadn't been figured out. But he set a goal, he set a time frame, uh, which I think is a good thing to do if you're setting a technical challenge and, and um, provided the resources to do it. But there were so many other technical, there's so many other challenges that beyond the technical in sustaining a program like this over 10 years with multiple, you know, administrations and uh, through the whole chaos of the 60s where, you know, the public support could have, you know, really changed. Um, and it was never, there was, there was only a short period of time around the time of Apollo 8 and Apollo 11 when public support for the space program went over 50%. So it was a huge political challenge in just maintaining financing for the project, maintaining public support for the project, maintaining congressional support for the project. And I think that's a really important lesson to anyone who wants to do something similarly audacious, that uh, you can't just think about the technical challenge. You've also got to maintain and sustain political and public support for something like this. And, and that's, one of, I think, one of the greatest achievements and most underrated and ignored achievements that NASA succeeded at. That certainly is one of the questions you raised. Uh, there were people asking, how, why spend billions and billions of dollars on something like this and uh, attack a challenge like this when there are so many other challenges on Earth that have yet to really be addressed? Yeah, I, mean, I think that was, that was one thing we really um, tried to focus on, is putting the race to the moon in context of the time in which it took place. I mean, it's, it's kind of nice to sort of see it as a story that's out of time, as a, a, a space story. You really can't understand how and why we pulled this off without understanding the context of the, of, of the moment. And so there's, we, we really spend a lot of time dealing with the, uh, the social and political context. We focus a lot on the Russian program, because obviously this was a race with the Russians, and one of the characters who kind of narrates that part of the story is Sergei Khrushchev, who was the son of the uh, Soviet premier at the time, um, Nikita Khrushchev, who was by his father's side through all of the events that took place and was himself a leading Soviet rocket engineer. And he's just got an incredible perspective from you know the Russian point of view of how they saw uh, what was what was going on, um, and reveals, you know, 
I think one of the one of the big surprises was how close we came to Kennedy uh, uh, Kennedy and Khrushchev in the, the months just prior to Kennedy's assassination had agreed to do a joint Soviet Russia uh, Soviet American mission to the moon. Both both sides were appalled at the escalating costs and the redundancy of their programs. They both were trying to find a way to wind down the tensions of the Cold War, and Kennedy had proposed this to Khrushchev, and Khrushchev had agreed just about a month before Kennedy was assassinated. It's an incredible what-if, uh, what might have been. But Kennedy was killed, and Khrushchev was overthrown about six months later, and that idea died. Another thing that struck me uh, in part one was the use of the word propaganda. And your film points out that in the race to the moon, propaganda was important and employed by both Russia and America in different ways. Russia's use, as you mentioned, or as you pointed out in the film, uh, was very controlled. Uh, Everything with their space program done in secret, kind of behind closed doors, Uh, the information squeezed and released as they saw fit. And America's propaganda was out in the public. It was live on TV. Uh, There was largely an open-door policy to the press. And as your film says, this was largely because of President Kennedy's desire to do things live on TV. It's important to remember the race to the moon was war by other means. This was a war of visual imagery and a war between the Soviet Union and the United States to demonstrate to the rest of the world, you know, which society is going to lead us into the future, which is, which is on the cutting edge of technology and progress and human progress and, and is aligned with the future. Is it, is it, our, is it us? Is it uh, Western democracy or is it um, Soviet communism? And um, so how, these, how this adventure was, was portrayed um, was a key part of the story. It's not just a means of us looking back and telling the story. It was the story. So we, we delve into that quite a bit. And, uh, and you're quite right that I think one of the great strengths of NASA's ability to generate public support was by showing these uh, launches live on TV. You didn't know what was going to happen, and they took the risk. Well, you know, if, if, it's, if it succeeded, you know, uh, 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 that's great. And if it fails, well, um, we're open about it. And... Um, and if and, it fails, uh, it's also potentially catastrophic to a really fragile public uh, perception of what's going on. It is, but what it succeeded in doing, the brilliance of doing that, is it made us all feel involved. It was, it was, it was, it was not them. It wasn't NASA. It wasn't the government. It was us. Right. So it, that was part of the excitement of it. Is we all felt, even 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 I as a, as a little kid watching it on TV in the morning was when they would send the rockets up. There was a sense that we were all part and parcel of it, and we were all invested in the success and failure of every mission. And that helped keep everyone engaged. Uh, whereas the Soviet Union would only announce launches after they were successful, and they never reported their failures. You know that had drawbacks to it. One of which was that they they weren't able to correct problems because they weren't open about problems as they arose. Their program suffered grievously for that. A few minutes ago, you alluded to uh, Edward Dwight, the first African-American in the astronaut program. And we've been exploring the issue of segregation uh, at Marshall Space Flight Center, Center here on the Public Radio Hour. Uh, Dwight's experience was an example how the issue of race was also prevalent throughout the space program, not just here in Huntsville. How did the Apollo program change or affect attitudes toward race? Or did it? 
Well, um, NASA was not very good at integrating their facilities. Um, However, because it was a federally funded program, um, they had to abide by the Civil Rights Act. And so things like um, when the uh, Space Center at Houston was opened and uh, on land that was owned by Rice University, part of the quid pro quo of that was Rice University had to be integrated. Uh, And uh, that that forced Rice University to integrate. Uh, Astronauts were not allowed to speak, and and NASA officials were not allowed to speak at segregated um, universities or segregated institutions. So this sort of pushed civil rights in many areas uh, in the South. But it's it's a mixed record. It's a it's a very mixed record, uh, as as everything was uh, related to civil rights during that time. There were successes and and uh, and there were setbacks. But um, no, you're right. It was very much a part of of NASA's story, as it was of uh, you know, um, as it was of everything going on at that time. It was it was permeated uh, every aspect of life, and and as it did with the space program. And space- but one of the things we strove to do was to point out um, how there were there were African Americans working throughout the space program at every level. They weren't necessarily at the highest levels because that's just the way things were. But um, but uh, they were present, and uh, we highlight that and uh, Poppy Northcutt's story as well. And um, we also show the the opposition to the space program that came from. Uh, we show the incredible protest that Ralph Abernathy, um, who took up the mantle after um, the civil rights movement after uh, Martin Luther King was killed, led a protest march to. Cape Kennedy on the eve of the um, launch of Apollo 11 to demonstrate the misplaced priorities of um, the federal government spending $23 billion to put a man on the moon while many, many people in America, mostly African Americans, were going hungry every night. And yet, he also was stood proudly as an American and watched the launch and was very proud to be there. So he wasn't, it was a very intelligent and uh, moving moment for him to both say critically that our priorities may be misplaced, but yet acknowledging that this was an incredible achievement. One of the new things that I've learned so far, and I can't, like I said, I can't wait to see parts two and three, uh, was how Edward Dwight's story was incorporated into the American propaganda effort. The documentary points out that NASA used the idea of a black man headed to space to encourage African countries not to sabotage the very critical tracking stations that were located in their communities. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, well, the major impetus for recruiting Edward Dwight in the first place was as part of this thing I was talking about before of impressing other countries in the world uh, as to which nation and which society and which form of government they should follow. And uh, at this moment in time, America was seen as having the, the America's racial problems were at the forefront of people's consciousness and watching the news and uh, seeing what was going on in America. And so it was believed that if America could put an African-American in space, that that would demonstrate that uh, we somehow solved our uh, civil rights problem. Of course, it wouldn't have just be one person, but that was that was the impetus. And and so he, you know, 
it's it's uh, it's a very interesting story. He was used as a as a as a propaganda tool for sure. Of course, he he didn't actually make it to be an astronaut. But um, you're right; it's an incredible story that he used his photographs, uh, sent his photographs to Africa to show, hey, you know, <laughs> look what we've got here, and please, please uh, don't. There was a lot of there was a lot of disruption in Africa at the time, and a lot of anti-American um, attitudes. And uh, they uh, they sent out his picture to say, "Hey, don't destroy our tracking station. We're with you." We're talking with Robert Stone, uh, filmmaker, director of Chasing the Moon, a new documentary series that uh, debuts on Alabama Public Television uh, in July. Just a couple of more quick questions, Robert, uh, including a, a big one, especially for folks here in Huntsville. Uh, you mm-hmm. also tackled the very complicated legacy of Werner von Braun and the connection of von Braun and his team to the Nazi party. Uh, as I mentioned, that's something that's still very contentious uh, here in Huntsville. Uh, and the film points out that at one time, even two of America's top space centers were headed by Nazis. So as, as the director and storyteller, uh, what was your philosophy or approach to including or telling this critical part of the Apollo story? Well, I think I think Werner von Braun is the through line through parts one, two, and three. I think he's one of the most fascinating characters of the 20th century. This almost sort of Faustian character who who uh, who uh, uh, serves uh, the, the 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 German war machine uh, is actually a colonel in the SS at one point. Um, comes to the U.S. Um, his past is largely covered up uh, and. Um, becomes the most famous scientist of his day, and, and is absolutely pivotal in 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 getting America to the moon. And public, and he was also incredibly charismatic, and and uh, the media loved him. Um, and so he was not only a, a, a critical scientist in terms of just the real architect of the Saturn V rocket, but he was also a great showman, and really sold the whole idea of, of the possibility of humans going into space, going to the moon, going to Mars, even you know. And had an incredibly pivotal role throughout the whole thing. And yet, you know, he has this conflicted past. Um, there's not any evidence to me that he was a believer in Nazism or anything. Um, I think he was a, an opportunist whose his his goal was to build rockets and go into space. And however he could do that, however he could get funding, whoever was going to be his benefactor, that was his goal. And interestingly, as you'll see in part three. That past somehow um, starts to come come back to haunt him uh, on the eve of the uh, launch of Apollo 11 to the moon, as the you know the media environment had really changed by then, and the kind of things that sort of uh, that might have been swept under the rug in the early 60s were now out in the open, and uh, he started to get challenged on his past. But it's he's just an absolutely fascinating person. Was there an, a new idea or a new, perhaps, historical connection that you discovered during production of this series that really resonates with you? Well, there's lots of things that I certainly knew nothing about going into it that uh, were hugely surprising to me. Um, and we've touched on a number of them, the story of Ed Dwight being one of them, the story of uh, how close we came to possibly having a joint Soviet-American mission to the moon. It's interesting when you look at history and without imagining, okay, we landed on the moon, what's the story of how we landed, how, what's the story of how we got there? Then you go back and you just pick all the 
the, the story points along the way that got us to the moon. What we tried to do by using contemporaneous news accounts and really keeping this whole story in the present tense is you're, you're watching it and you don't know how it's going to turn out. Uh, I mean, we all know, uh, you know, we know that we eventually got to the moon, but there's a suspension of disbelief that anything could have happened. But history could have gone one way or the other, and it's the what-ifs and what might have been that are so fascinating in the story. And it was, it was never a foregone conclusion that we were actually going to succeed in doing this. And there are many, many points where it really looked like this just was not going to happen. And I think that's one of the surprises that uh, you'll see in watching this series is how difficult and uncertain it was every step of the way. Robert Stone, director of Chasing the Moon on the Public Radio Hour here on 89.3 Huntsville. Robert, thanks for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. It's been a pleasure. As I mentioned during the interview, I've seen part one of Chasing the Moon. In fact, it nearly made me late to work because I couldn't stop watching it. You can enjoy it for yourself on Alabama Public Television or your local public television station when it premieres on PBS's American Experience, July 8th, 9th, and 10th, in advance of the 50th anniversary of the Apollo 11 mission. You can also hear from Robert Stone, as well as Dr. Margaret Von Braun and Susan Bellows, senior producer for American Experience, at a public screening of Chasing the Moon, Friday evening, that's tomorrow, at 6.30, at the U.S. Space and Rocket Center's Nat Geo Digital Theater. The screening and discussion are open to the public, but seating is very limited. Maybe I'll see you there. Thanks again to Robert for spending time with us. This is the Public Radio Hour on listener-supported 89.3 Huntsville. I'm your host tonight, Brett Tannehill. Thanks to you for tuning in. Over the past several shows, Marshall Space Flight Center historian and WLRH Community Newsroom producer Brian Odom has been introducing us to people who helped integrate the workforce at NASA and Marshall Space Flight Center, blazing new trails for minorities and women as America looked for new ways and new talents to team up and explore space. Next, we'll meet Arthur Hewlett, born on his grandfather's plantation in Lowndes County in 1926, a military veteran and graduate of Alabama A&M University, and eventually one of the first African Americans to be hired in a technical field as an engineering aide in the Apollo 11 program. Here's Brian Odom, Arthur Hewlett, and me in Mr. Hewlett's living room in Huntsville. I was just trying to find a job anywhere that I could because actually when I got out of school, the schools uh, began to desegregate a little bit, and the state decided they weren't going to hire any more black people for agriculture uh, agents and ag teachers. And that meant I had to get a job wherever I could. I went to work as a janitor at a theater for about a year. And during that time, I was putting an application for civil service wherever I could get it. I remember I had an offer made to go to Wisconsin, I think it was, and work in the prison system. But before that came about, I, I was able to hear from Redstone, and I gladly took it because it was at home. I'd like to tell you, though, before I, I got a chance to go to Redstone, I used to would call the, I think it was called a rocket center, and, and just wanted to go out and see if I could put an application. And you'd be surprised at the type of response I was getting. The, if you want me to tell you, they said, we don't hire niggas. <laughs> that was at the space, Rocket Space Center. And, of course, I wasn't surprised at that because in those days, that's just about the way it was. Uh, that didn't, I wasn't offended at that, but I thought it was time for a change. 
having gone to Germany and served faithfully in the military and come home and hoping that you could see things better. And uh, it wasn't any better, I don't suppose, but I didn't stop trying. I didn't get mad at anybody because I thought it was my job to try to help make them prove it. And, of course, I think eventually I did. Well, tell me a little bit about you know how you got hired at, at Redstone and some of the work you were doing there in the beginning. Well, I'll tell you, I was the first Afro-American that they brought in at, uh, at Redstone as a white-collar worker. There were janitors and people like that, but they brought me in as a white-collar worker. And it was in those days when civil rights was just beginning to heat up. And it was, it was pretty tough. The, the people that I had to work for, I had one person that I worked for, the, he was, a, a, I would say, a unit supervisor maybe, but he was, he was a very fine man, one of the finest people I could have met. And, a, and he had to assign me to work for some more people. And these folks that he assigned me to, they were just, you would have thought they were wearing a sheet and a hood. <laughs> but it was something you had to overcome. People use ugly ex- expressions, and, and when they got a chance, they would say things that would hurt you deep down on the inside. And at first it bothered me, but I learned something. you got to learn how to take all of this and treat these folk good and work with them. Let them know that, that you're a man. Now stand up for what's right. And, and because I wanted to see other people, black people, come to work in Washington Center, and I did. In fact, at one point I thought they were trying to provoke me to a physical consultation. And the supervisor I had, he would probably would love to have had that as an excuse, he thought. In fact, he told me that if we left with him and John Patterson, John Patterson was a governor at the time, yo, I know y'all too young to know about him, but he was he was a terrible he was worse than George Wallace. But uh he was a true segregationist. And and this supervisor said, well, left with you and me and John Patterson, you'd be out there in the cotton field. <laughs> and I'm sure if he if he could have kept me from going to work, he would have done that. But uh we made it through. Why do you think that people were speaking that way to you? You mentioned that you thought they might be trying to provoke you. Why do you think they were were doing that? Well, I thought they were trying to provoke me into doing something ugly so that they could use it as an alibi to say, don't bring any more black people out here. And uh, in fact, I, I pretty much knew that because they did everything except physically put their hands on me. There were all kinds of threats. And I didn't think anybody was going to really physically. I was a pretty good man, and I didn't think anybody wanted to attack me physically, you know, because when I went to Redstone, they had just taken down the signs, the colored and white. They had. I wished I could have gotten one of those as a souvenir. And this cafeteria was, it was integrated, but you, I wouldn't. I didn't feel comfortable going to them. I'd like to tell you, the first cafeteria I went to, my supervisor invited me to go with him and another fellow. When we got into that cafeteria, there were about thirty people eating breakfast. It's amazing how civil service people would go there and sit down and eat breakfast on the government time. And when I walked in, when they saw me, everybody just got up and got out of there as fast as they could. And there was people who had their food tray on the conveyor, and they walked away and left it there. And there was one man tried to get his money back because they saw me, and they wouldn't give it to him. But in three or four minutes, there were only three people besides the employees in that place. So... This is the type of thing that happened, but it, it it took a little time to overcome that. In fact, about it, in 4488 at the time was the headquarters for Dr. Von Braun and General Maderis. 
they had a beautiful cafeteria, and I hesitated to go there because I didn't. I thought I just wanted to be as peaceful as I could. I have to tell you, one day there were about five women caught me on the elevator, and they demanded you go to the cafeteria with us. They said, you act like you're scared? Let's go. And uh, they took me to the cafeteria, and I wasn't comfortable because I was trying to trying to avoid any type of racial problem. Sat down, and in fact, I took took a table where only two people could sit. These ladies made me get up and come and sit at the table with them. And uh, I got up and went over. But you would have thought, looking at the men in that place, they were just waiting for an opportunity, probably to to explode. And it well, they would have had a problem, but uh, nobody did anything. And it took some time to make friends. And I tell you what, everybody that I met, I was as polite as I could be to them, male and females. When they didn't, when they talked ugly to me, I would be nice to them. And it, it took some time, but I won. When I left Marshall Center, I was highly respected by everybody, and I love that. That's the most beautiful part about it. I tell you, after I went there as an aide, and for a while, quite a while, I had a desk job, and I enjoyed my work. Eventually, they had to contract much of the work out, and I think the contractors, evidently, the contract ran out, so they had to take the aides and put them out to do the work that contractor had been doing. They transferred me to the wind tone. It was quite interesting. When I got to the wind tone, uh, we had a 7-inch wind tone and a 14-inch wind tone. The 17-inch wind tone was out of commission because the tank that held the air, the what we had called a bladder, had, had a bad t- tag in it. And they, they said they couldn't fix it. And I said, I think it can be fixed. They said, well, can you fix it? If you do, go in there and do it. So I went in there and, and took another one of the aides, a student aides, and we, we repaired that, that bladder, and it worked. And normally in those days, if you did something that was important, they would give you some extra money. They didn't even give me a, a letter of commendation. <laughs> and so when I learned that that was a job of that sort, I brought it to the attention of the supervisor. They eventually wrote me a little letter, but I never got any money for it which it wasn't a real thing. But after a while, I was assigned, given assignment. I was absent one day. When I got back, they had assigned everybody to to jobs, to new jobs, and they put two people on each job. Well, I was an odd man. Being the only Afro-American, most of these fellas didn't want to work with me because they were good men. They were from places like Cub and Arab and Sand Mountain, and they had boasted about white supremacy, you might say, you know. But... Uh, they assigned me to assign me to a uh, air compressor station. It was interesting. That station, they had, had at least two people operating it, and uh, when they assigned me to it, they didn't. I was there by myself. This thing had had three. I uh, was something like three three big engines. I call them engines. It was electrical, but the they had a large one with pistol in it about. Um, 20 inches of diameter, and another one with a piston inch and about 12 inches, and another one with a piston inch and about 4 inches. And whenever the thing, each, each one of them had about four pistons at each one. Whenever a ring would break, something like the ring in an automobile piston, you would know it because the whistle would make a loud noise, and you had to hurry up and shut it down, take those pistons out, repair them, and put it back together right quick. But normally it would take one man several hours 
if he didn't know what he was doing. But I learned how to do that. What I would do, I had some extra pistols. I kept them prepared. And, and I, I kind of felt like they wanted to complain, say I couldn't do the job. I learned something. When, that, when a ring would, would break, and it took about 20 or 30 minutes before the wind tunnel could make a second run. They never missed a run. And it was interesting. In a, in a few weeks, I could, I, that was the most efficient operation they had there. I said, if you give me a job to do, I may not have had any training for it, but if you give me a chance, in a few weeks I'm going to learn to do it as well as anybody. And I was happy that I'd manned that job well. Tell me a little bit about uh, your interaction with Von Brown or, and, and with General Medeiros. Did you ever see those guys? Are they interested in you? Yes, I had a chance. In fact, that Dr. Von Braun sent for me. I'm sure he was watching me every day. Being up. By that time, they had probably brought in one or two more, but I went to his office, and he got up and shook hands with me, and I felt as most comfortable with him, a fine man. And I just felt real good being in his presence. And, of course, when I met General Medeiros, uh, the way I met him, I guess, was I was on a wing, and there, there was some talk about a threat. What had happened, we had, being on a black, but there were a bunch of white young ladies. And these women were not a, running from me. They were, they were being friendly. So they were, you know, I can, can imagine some of the communication. And, and uh, some of the fellows talking about what they were going to do to me, I guess. But when, when Madeiras found it out, he put some MPs on that hallway, and believe it or not, they were probably taller than you, all of them. Big, tall, looked like first-class troopers. And I thought they were there to, because, to, to, to God, to, not to do something to me, and I wondered about that. And I learned later that they were there for my protection. And after that, I got a chance to meet General Medeiros. And I tell you what, for a gentleman, and I'd been in the Army, never really met, met a gentleman, but I met Madeiras. I felt just like I was meeting somebody that was... A friend, you know, and he was one of the finest military people I ever met. So and I enjoyed him so much. In fact, I would like to take when when he retired, we worked together and to help elect some of the politicians. So the civil rights movement is going on, you know, outside. You, and you mentioned that, but the civil rights movement is going on outside the gates of Redstone. From your perspective, how did that play out? What what was going on in Huntsville? That it's amazing. One day I was asked to come to go to a city-in, and I didn't, I didn't know anything about city-ins. And I had expense a day or two before that. I stopped at a local store downtown to pick up some supplies for my kids. And when I went to reach in to pick up this book, uh, a, 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 a writing pad, one of the gentlemen jumped off the cabinet, I mean off his seat, and he had his fist ball up. So I didn't know what he was going on. So I reached the second time, he, he jumped again. And I said, well, if he's going to, do that, I'm going to get to pick up what I wanted. But he didn't strike me. I'm glad it didn't because I was I was not the nonviolent time. I'm going to tell you, I believe in going to Sunday school and treating people right, but if you if you get up there and strike me, it's going to be a <laughs> retaliation, I thought. But I did not participate in any, any, any of the civil rights activities because I thought it was the people who had the temperament, who could tolerate that, you know, and so... I just stayed out of it. But I had my own little way of doing things. I believe in going to Sunday school, going to church, and reading the Bible, and talking to folks. What I thought the best way to do it through, through Christianity. And it worked pretty good for me, though. But uh, I just didn't get involved. It, it was a long, hard fight. But outside of the gate, the 
we had always make the people think about men like Thurgood Marshall. He was an excellent attorney, and I think it was at the time he was a, a head of the NAACP. And believe it or not, I think most of the white folks were scared of the NAACP at that time. <laughs> but, but you did... Uh... You did take the nonviolent approach uh, at Marshall. You said that you, people would try to provoke you, and you were there uh, on, on a different mission. You weren't going to let them provoke you and get you into trouble. Well, most of the time, whenever it, 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 it became necessary, I would not hesitate to remind them that if it, if it became necessary, I would call on the NAACP. And uh, that calmed down lots of people. There were people constantly would tell me that, you black people, well, they didn't use the word black, but they used something else. You shouldn't be out here unless you have a broom. And they told you, I was taking a job that blow the white folks. And I told them I had to make a living too. And I said, I pay tax. He said, yeah, but you don't pay much because you don't have any education. In fact, one of the men told me, he said, the mistake that, that we've made in this country is to educate black folks. He said, they kept you ignorant, we could hell you. <laughs> and I guess that might have been true. But you can't. You can't keep everybody down. I don't care how you look at it. Somebody's going to prevail. And I always tell people, I don't care what you can do. Somebody's going to do it better. And it may not be a white person. It might be a black person. And I still say that. That's the truth today. If you let me sit in the classroom, I may not make an A. But that other guy might make, might make the honor roll. And there's no such thing as racial superiority. Now, you all know that. If you give a man a chance... The best man, his talent's going to win. One other person I want to find out a little bit more about is uh, Dr. Richard Morrison, who is president of Alabama A&M. Now, so you you had a little bit of experience working with him and some of the uh, some of the things he was doing to try to really, uh, you know, build A&M and develop it uh, in, for technical training and to open new careers for people. Uh, tell me a little bit about that. When I went to A&M, Dr. Morrison was the first person I met. I sought him out. And he was a fine gentleman, uh, and of course he was—he was the chairman of the agriculture department at the time, and, and the president was named Dr. Joseph F. Drake. And I'm going to tell you, he was a fine, well-rounded educator. One of the things I noted about Dr. Drake when he would come to town, every time he met a woman, and they usually white, he would always tip his hat at them. This was a common way that black people normally did, and and. The women respected, everybody respected Dr. Drake for this. Dr. Morrison, though, was a little bit different. Uh, if you, I remember Dr. Meadows, who was this, the superintendent of education, came out to the school one day, and I was with Dr. Morrison. He told Dr. Meadows, he said, we need a shed built, need some money to build a shed, because our farm equipment is out there with a, with a canvas over it. And he said, rusting out. He said, nobody at Auburn have this problem. And Dr. Meadows kind of spoke down to him, and he spoke up to Dr. He spoke so strongly, I thought he was going to lose his job that day. But he told him, I said, no, we want, we want something. We want, and we got to have better, got to, we got to do better about this. And, and he was a very strong person. Uh, at the time, we had, sometime a student would be, would get out of hand in school. When everybody got out of hand, they turned over to Dr. Morrison. He was a man that you did not mess with. You didn't defy Dr. Morrison. If you did, you could get hurt. <laughs> it doesn't matter who you are. It was interesting. I, I, one day he, I had a call, so he had me to drive him to Hill Chevrolet to pick up the school truck. When he got there, 
And he told a man at front, he said, I'm in a hurry, i got to get back to a class. And there was a white man in front of him had his way blocked. And he told a man, he said, let me out, I'm in a hurry. The man ignored him. He said it the third time. The man, he, he took the door of the man's door truck and closed that door. He said, get out of my way. And the man's foot was in the door. And one day he didn't break the man's foot. He said, I said, get out of my way. And you know what? That man got out of the <laughs> I would have, I would have too because of, just because he was a black man and Martian was an intelligence, I, I thought he set a good example. But I, I learned something else. When I went to work for Marshall, A&M was not offering any courses to, to help make the transformation from agriculture to, to, to technicality. And uh, he asked me to come one day back to the school and tell him about the kind of work I was doing. When I explained to him, I learned from that point he wanted to incorporate the type of courses that help students to be prepared for a transition. And um, after that, they had draftsmen and a lot of other courses that helped students that when they graduated from A&M, they could go and get a job. They may not serve as engineers, but they were better prepared than I was. Well, so during this whole time that you're at Marshall and the, and the Apollo program is going on, uh, what did you think about these things, these big vehicles, the Saturn V and then the Apollo 11 launch? Tell me a little bit about your experience with that. As an aide, I had a chance to to work closer to the Saturn. I just thought that was one of the most tremendous vehicles. Uh, I had a chance to, to do some of my work at the test stand. Uh, I wasn't always in wind tunnel. I had a chance to do some other things, and and. I was really impressed. I remember one day I was in, in the, what they call the Von Von Hilton, uh, the big building, the headquarters building, and I was on the fifth floor. And I was watching the test stand because I knew what time this thing was supposed to fire up. And sure when that big engine fired up, uh, I'm standing there looking at it, and in a few seconds the building moved. And it scared me good because, yeah, I reached for the window and the window moved. And I, you could see me get on my knees. <laughs> I thought the building was going to collapse. Uh, but it was prepared for that. But uh, the the Southern Fire was one of the buildings. I did the kind of work that I did uh, in relation to Southern Fire was we had something called an angle of attack. They never used it, but uh, the angle of attack was what you would put inside the vehicle, and uh, when it was started flying, it had a had a little probe. the The wind would could change it. You could that helped control the vehicle. I learned a lot about about that, though. That's one of the jobs I did. Over the years that you were there, who were some of the other African-Americans who began to, to work at Marshall and contributed uh, that maybe you interacted with? That was a fellow named Clyde Foster. And uh, Mr. Smoot. Smoot was, I don't He had worked at Alabama A&M in the business section. But Clyde Foster actually was, my first year at A&M, we were classmates. And when I got back, uh, I th- maybe the first year, but anyway, Clyde was far ahead of me. Clyde was in the education department. I was down in the ag department. So he was better prepared to to do academic work than I was because here I am prepared to, to, to do whatever it took to make horses and cows most palatable. But uh, he was prepared to do the academic work, and he became uh, the, the one of the... The, I think it was the Equal Employment Office wanted for his first job. And he was, at, at first, was just a figurehead. But when he caught on and found out what he needed to do, he put some teeth in his work 
and they, they respected Clyde. And there were people who had black people who thought they were mistreated. They went to Clyde for complaint. And when he got through, some of them uh, uh, were, won their case. I remember there was one man, and he was, it was, almost every case was sheer discrimination. And you had supervisors who did everything they could to discredit the black, keep them from getting promoted. And one gentleman uh, complained, and, and, and when he won his case, they said he should have been promoted. Uh, I think it was a GS3, said it should have been a nine, and they had to pay him all the way to time up to a nine. And it made a lot of people angry. And the only thing was, was said, if, if you had treated him right, you wouldn't have had these problems. And they learned some things, and it, it was interesting. It led to, at that time we had, a, I think the, 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 the man took one of my place named Everhard Reese. And brother, Dr. Reese did not have the courage, I didn't think, to be a good leader. Because he would, one day for a week, he was calling all the blacks to come in and, and, and ask us to explain uh, how we felt about whether we was any progress. I forgot exactly what But I told him that I thought it was kind of a waste of time. I said, if I was in your shoes or in your office, I wouldn't call, I wouldn't take people off the job. I'd write a memo and send it to all the supervisors and tell them what not to do. And I said, they, I said, they think I'll lose their job. They would not do it. And he didn't like me telling him that. And one of the aides took me and drug him out of his office. He said, you don't talk to him like that. I said, somebody need to tell him. I said, if I was in that slot, that's what I would do. I'd write a memo. But see, it, it takes courage. If he had written a memo, many of these, what you might call white Americans, would have complained, and they were saying that they didn't think the gentleman should have been in charge anyway. And the reason why the gentleman was in charge because they had the experience, they had the organization, and our people had, some, many of them had worked at Langley, but they didn't know how to make a missile fly. They, even those are engineers, you don't, just because you had a mechanical engineer, you didn't, you may not have known anything, you know. That's one of the experiences I had, and I think what I said to Everhard Reese worked. What is it about your contributions for the Apollo program that you're most proud of? When people talk about these anniversaries that are coming up, what are you proud about the work you've done at Marshall? Besides the mechanical work, actually was making friends. That was, to me, most important because I don't care how well you do your work. If you're not liked, your work is not going to go to the top. And I try to be, be the kind of person where people would like me. And, and I succeeded. In fact, about it, as I said, when I left Marshall, I was treated like a king almost by almost everybody. I'd like to point out, at one time I had a job, I, had, I was, we had some huge lasers from Raytheon, and it was my responsibility to get them shipped here. If they didn't work, get them shipped back on time. I remember one evening, about, about almost 4 o'clock, I was told to get this laser shipped tonight. Then I had to go over to the shop where they made these boxes and tell the supervisor what the situation was, and that meant he had to hold his people up, and it made him real angry. I said, well, my job is to get it done, and I had to come to you. And he said, I'm not going to do it. I said, well, I was, I said, well, I have to run up there to 4488 to the headquarters. Went up to his boss, and I had to hurry up and do this. So they called him back. He said, yes, you are. You're going to make it. <laughs> they blame me for it. And, well, I can understand. But they made these boxes, and one of the gentlemen that worked in that shop was named Foster. Uh, used to see him at the grocery store. We would got to be friends, but he would tell me what a predicament I would put them in because these every, these people carpooling and whatnot. But they learned 
to respect me because I was trying to get the job. Now, if you gave me a job to do and told me to get it done, I'd tell you what, I was going to do everything I could to get it done. If you didn't want to do it, I'd find who your boss is and go, I learned this in the Army. You, you, when you started going over folks' head and get something done, they'd want to cut your head off. I went to, I had to go to battalion headquarters once and talk to a major, and he said, I'm not going to do it. I said, well, sir, who is your boss? And he told me. I went to his boss. And this colonel said, yes, he is going to do it. So I learned it's work everywhere. <laughs> but you have to do it with friendship. That was Arthur Hewlett, who worked as part of the Apollo 11 program in the wind tunnel and was one of the early African-Americans working at NASA and Marshall Space Flight Center. Thanks to Mr. Hewlett and Robert Stone for sharing their stories tonight. And don't forget, you can also hear from Robert Stone, as well as Dr. Margaret Von Braun and Susan Bellows with American Experience at a public screening of Chasing the Moon tomorrow evening at 6.30 at the U.S. Space and Rocket Center's Nat Geo Digital Theater. The screening and discussion are open to the public, but seating is limited. We hope you enjoyed tonight's Public Radio Hour here on 89.3 Huntsville, our weekly mix of special programs and homemade radio features. Don't forget to explore the podcast archives at WLRH.org. Just look under Programs for the Public Radio Hour. You can also find tonight's episode on the WLRH Facebook and Twitter feeds. Thanks so much for tuning in. Next week, Katie Ganaway joins the Public Radio Hour production team with a special Mother's Day episode featuring work from our Sundial Writers Corner. Have a great night. WLRH and Alabama Public Television are collecting stories from people who worked on the historic 1969 moon landing or remember watching it with their friends and family. Did you watch the moon landing on television? Who were you with? What do you remember about it? Did you work on the moon landing? Were you an engineer on Apollo or know someone who was? We want to hear all about your experience. Share your story at aptv.org.